Thanks for tuning in to this Journey Bible Church sermon podcast. Join us every week for fresh sermons from God's Word by subscribing to this podcast wherever you listen most. If you're looking for a church in the Kansas City metro, come check out one of our church campuses for worship on Sundays. Now, we hope you enjoy the message. Father God, we confess there is none like you, no one greater in wisdom, no one greater in power. You are the almighty Yahweh, the great I am. God, help us today to grow just a little bit more in knowing you. Turn us, Lord, from fleeting wisdom in ourselves to the perfect wisdom of Christ. Turn us, Lord, from the alluring powers of the world to the infinite power of Christ. God, open our hearts and minds to receive your life-transforming word today. And in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus, all God's people said, amen. All right, well, good morning, everyone. Uh, Welcome to the second West Campus worship service and the start of weekly worship services here at 9 a.m., or today, more like 9.30 a.m. So let's give a round of applause. We made it. We made it to two. So many more to go. So uh, if there are any guests here this morning, um, or we're going to try to upload the service online later this week, uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, My name is Pastor Colton, the West Campus pastor at Journey Bible Church. Uh, You may have noticed some changes today, um, and these changes and more that are coming, a lot of it's the result of feedback um, from folks uh, just like you, talking to me, giving your input. Uh, One of those changes, some of you might remember, was Pastor Rex talked about lighting. Well, check that out. We've got got better lighting, so we're, we're making improvements. Um, We also had, thanks to Kendall Klein and Kristen, uh, we're going to have some preschool uh, care for Journey Kids Coordinator back in Warehouse Room B after the worship service. Uh, They're going to be hosting snacks. Everybody loves snacks and activities back there, so you're not going to want to miss it. Uh, In the near future, we're going to be updating that room some more, um, so there's some more good things coming. Uh, Additionally, we have our own new West Campus Bulletins. These are the best bulletins in the world. Uh, You're going to find a ton of West Campus-specific information uh, in these. Uh, Just opening up to the first uh, page down there, you're going to see a a Help Wanted ad. Uh, Photographers Wanted. Uh, If you yourself are a self-proclaimed photographer or you know someone that's good at it, uh, we're looking for kind of landscape photographers to help us update our covers. So right now we're using some stock images, but we would love to be able to feature and credit photographers uh, that have just take photos of our community. We just think that'd be really cool. Uh, In the future, we'd also like to maybe feature some global missions photos and trips from there on the fronts of our bulletins. 
So on the second to last page, as some of you probably have already discovered, uh, you can find a space for sermon notes today. Uh, if you need a pen, there should be some pens, again, by the wire racks near the bulletins. Uh, you'll find our key Bible passage, so you can underline and mark it up, uh, as well as this week's New City Catechism uh, question and answer, which happens to deal with the subject of judgment, which really ties in well to power and wisdom. So then finally, on the back cover um, here, you can find discussion questions for our fellowship time and assignments for our four breakout groups. Um, so uh, Wes and I will lead one of the groups, so Wes is there in the back. Um, Greg and Mark will lead another. Um, Ray and Columbus, I don't think they're here today, so uh, if you're in their group, uh, you get to join whatever group you think is coolest. Um, if you're a guest, you can join whatever group you think is coolest. And then um, Chris, my dad, and Jacob will lead another group. And so we'll kind of divide up um, about 15 minutes after the service today. If you don't see your name or your spouse's name um, and you have any questions about this, you can come find me after the service and stuff. But this is just a special time where we can help process and, you know, just fellowship about the Word together. So um, with that said, uh, we're going to be continuing our None Like Him sermon series today. Uh, as Pastor Mike said at the beginning of this series, uh, preaching on the nature of God really requires us to orient ourselves theologically. Uh, this means that from week to week as we're working our way through this series, um, the sermons are probably going to feel a little bit different than if we were just to exposit one passage of the Bible. And you know, this is easier for some, harder for others, but you know, it's really good for us to think about God in different ways. It's one of the ways that helps us grow. Uh, because of the infinite breadth, length, and height, and depth of God's attributes, such as his love, uh, God himself cannot be contained um, by his own revelations to us. Uh, this means that there is no one section of the Bible that fully contains or perfectly describes God in all of his uncontainable uh, majesty. Uh, the awesome part, though, about theological preaching is that it allows us to survey different parts of the Bible and then bring what we discover together in such a way as to deepen our own understanding about God, and that's what we're going to be doing uh, today. So today, let's unpack God's wisdom and God's omnipotence or power. Now, wisdom and power might sound distinct, um, but we'll see that they're intricately tied together in God's nature. Um, I don't know about you, but it helps me to visualize something simple and familiar when it comes to unpacking things like doctrine and theology. If you want to go ahead and put the slide up for me, Cody. Um, uh, when I think about wisdom and power, I think about, you know, the fortune cookie and the pickle jar. Get those images in your head. Um, the fortune cookie is really the apex of human wisdom, isn't it? I mean, the wisest people in the world uh, who've studied the best of human philosophy uh, give us advice for life and fortune cookies. I mean, why would you need a life coach when you could go to the Chinese restaurant, order the poo-poo platter, and then get advice for life from the wisest in the world? I mean, it's a meal and therapy all in one. So now you guys all go get Chinese for lunch. Now, over the years, my friends and I have received all sorts of fabulous and impressive wisdom from fortune cookies, such as, you have a secret admirer, or I kid you not, don't do drugs, as well as, your lucky number is 13. You know, most of you have your own crazy fortunes you've probably received over the years, and if you need an icebreaker, uh, share them with a stranger today. Now, 
anyone should be able to break open a fortune cookie, but the pickle jar, on the other hand, is the premier test of human power. In your home, it might be pickles, might be salsa, it might be jam, but when that jar gets stuck, we immediately recognize who the alpha in the family or the friend group is when somebody effortlessly pops it off. The rest of us are just shamed by our weakness. The fortune cookie and the pickle jar, one a portrait of wisdom and one a portrait of power. Let's keep these two images in mind as we unpack how theologians now define God's wisdom and power. Now, Wayne Grudem, a systematic theologian that we'll kind of look at today, defines wisdom in this way. He says, God's wisdom means God always chooses the best goals and the best means to those goals. Again, God's wisdom means that God always chooses the best goals and the best means to those goals. Now, remember the fortune cookie. Good fortune cookies are supposed to be future-oriented. Uh, they don't just give you advice. They're supposed to give you advice that results in a better future for yourself. In the same way, good wisdom is supposed to be future-oriented. Wisdom is all about applying knowledge that you have in the present to achieve the best possible future. You know, often we perceive that someone who is older is someone who is wiser. Now, that's usually true, but that's not always true. You can have a lot of knowledge, and you can have years of life experience and still be, end up being very foolish in your life. The wisest person, then, is not always the smartest person or the person that has the most knowledge. The wisest person is a person who is really, really good at applying the knowledge that they have. When it comes to God, we do have to recognize that unlike us, he is timeless. Uh, we experience God through a linear timeline that he's made for us. That means there's a past, a present, and a future. Uh, God's wisdom is much more than knowing or knowledge or just good advice. God's wisdom refers to the grand application of his infinite knowledge. It's not just he knows everything. It's he applies everything he knows perfectly for the best possible outcome. God's wisdom means that he has already decided how to orchestrate all possible things in creation to achieve the best possible goals for his glory. You know, if you've seen the Avengers movies, you might remember Doctor Strange. And he has this stone called the Time Stone that gives him mastery over time. And at one part in the films, he uses the power of the stone to predict every conceivable future to help the Avengers make the best possible choice in the moment. You know, this is an example of what wisdom is in the Bible. You know, unlike fantasy or fiction, though, there aren't multiple concurrent timelines in the universe that God has made for us. Uh, God has given us no indication in his revelation that there are alternate versions of ourselves in other timelines. So there's not an alternate version of me. There's no alternate version of Mark. God has made us. You are the only one of you, and there's no one else that's like you. And the timeline that we're in right now is the one that God has made specifically for you. And God alone has the wisdom 
to achieve the best possible future for you, for me, and for all of creation. You know, although Romans 8.28 doesn't use the word wisdom, these verses helpfully demonstrate the ultimate result of God's wisdom. It says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. That's wisdom right there. For those that are called according to his purpose. Again, God's wisdom means he's so much more than a good advice giver. It means that God always applies his knowledge perfectly from an eternal perspective for the best possible outcomes. It may not always feel like that to us in any given moment, but God does not allow anything to happen that is not a part of his ultimate plan and the ultimate good of his creation. Now, what good, though, is wisdom if you don't have the power to apply it? Uh, You may know the wisest course of action. You may know exactly the best technique for opening up a pickle jar. But if you don't have enough power, then your wisdom becomes limited by the capacity of your strength. This brings us to omnipotence. Uh, Grudem defines it this way. God's omnipotence means that God is able to do all his holy will. God's omnipotence means that God is able, he's capable, he has the power to do all his holy will. He then explains the word omnipotence is derived from two Latin words, so omni, all, potens, power, and so you get all-powerful or almighty. Uh, For God to be infinitely wise, God must also be infinitely powerful. Unlike us, he has the strength to be able to do what he wills and to do it without any limitation. This means his wisdom will never be constrained by his inability to do something. You know, just like with Romans 8.28, Jeremiah has a helpful verse that shows us what God's power really means without actually using the word power. In Jeremiah 32.27, God himself declares this. He says, Behold, I am the Lord. Now, some of you might remember this from my last message. Uh, Lord is all caps there. So he's saying, I am who I am. My name is self-existent. I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. And then he asks, is anything too hard for me? And of course, the answer is no. There is nothing that is too hard for God to do because he's all-powerful. That means if he doesn't do something in our lives that we think or that we feel would be good, like let's say, for example, healing a disease, or eliminating a debt, or taking away a temptation. It doesn't mean that God doesn't have the power to do those things. It also doesn't mean that God isn't sensitive or doesn't care about our suffering. What it does mean, though, is that in his wisdom, he is orchestrating something much bigger and far grander And it's why Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. One, a symbol of power, the other, a symbol of wisdom. Your kingdom come, your will be done. God is not a fool, 
and God has no weakness of any kind. But for the sake of argument, it's why the Apostle Paul writes, The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Simply put, wisdom and omnipotence mean that God is wiser and God is stronger than anyone or anything else. What I'd like for us to do in the next part of our message is actually to survey three parts of redemptive history. Um, In each of these three parts, we're going to unpack how God's wisdom and power converge to show us something incredible about himself. And then at the end of the message, we'll draw a couple of applications with ways God calls us to respond to his wisdom and power. But before we do so, I'm going to take a quick drink. A little dry in here. All right. Well, if you've never heard the term redemptive history before, uh, that's just simply a way for referring to how God has acted in history to redeem, restore, and save people. Um, The Bible is the primary source of redemptive history, and there are far more than just three parts to it, Um, but we're just going to simplify it into three parts for today. Now, the first part of redemptive history is called creation. Uh, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible gives us God's theological creation account in Genesis 1 through 2. But elsewhere in Scripture, God actually explains the deeper implications of of creation. Uh, One of these places is actually Job. Uh, In fact, there are some scholars that believe the book of Job might be the oldest book in the Bible, even older than Genesis. Uh, Genesis may record the oldest events, but Job may actually predate Genesis. And so for those of you that are familiar with Job, um, when we often read it, we read it as a commentary of God's sovereignty over human suffering, but the book is also fully detailed with God's wisdom and power in creation. So if you have your Bibles, let's look at Job 12, verses 7 through 13. Here we find Job speaking, not one of his cruel friends, it's Job, and there, this is what he says, As Job is processing his suffering, his immense tragedy, he confidently declares this to his friends. He tells his friends, but ask the beasts, and they will teach you. The birds of the heavens, and they will tell you. Or the bushes of the earth, and they will teach you. And the fish of the sea will declare to you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this. In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Does not the ear test words as the palate taste food? Wisdom is with the aged and understanding in length of days. With God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding." From there, Job proceeds to cite example after example of God's wisdom and God's might in creation, followed by examples of creation's inability to resist the will of God. As we sung this morning, who can stop the Lord Almighty? What Job tells us here is that God's wisdom and power converge in creation. It converges in such a way that creation itself has the power to teach us something about God. Verse 7 says, 
ask the beasts, or in other words, ask creation. Now, we may not be able to hold an actual conversation with a dog or a bush. That would be really strange. But one of the ways that we talk to the beasts, the birds, the fish, and the trees is through something we call science. Job is saying that careful thought and observation of God's creation will inevitably lead us to questions and answers about the Creator Himself. As Job declares, who among all these creatures does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? You know, some of you know that my family just got back from a vacation to Branson uh, about a week ago, and one of the places that we went was the Butterfly Palace. It's this huge greenhouse full of thousands of colorful butterflies, and they give you a little sugar wand, and then the, butter, the butterflies like come and land on you. It's great. Uh, if you're like my daughter, Cora, it's super fun to have all these unique butterflies, you know, landing on you and trying to grab them. And if you're like my daughter, Riley, any flying bug is scary. It's a scary, creepy thing. Colorful or not, butterflies are something you scream and swat at. Whatever your own personal opinions of butterflies may be, um, I've discovered something pretty cool about blue butterflies in particular that speak volumes about the wisdom and power of God in creation. I, I didn't know this, but as we were kind of like studying and watching a documentary about it, uh, scientists say that the color blue is actually one of the rarest colors in all living things. Uh, no one knows why that is exactly, it just is. Uh, most creatures that are blue are not blue because of pigments from their bodies. So you might think of a flamingo. It turns pink because it eats pink food, and a lot of things turn the color that they eat. Um, but the bodies of blue creatures are very, very different. Uh, they are blue because, as you can see in this image, uh, they have these microscopic scale-like structures uh, these complex molecular structures on the skin of poison dart frogs, the feathers of blue jays, and the wings of butterflies are super special. They're special in the sense that they trap every frequency of light on the visible color spectrum except the color blue. Rays of light bounce inside the scales with shades of blue being the only frequency able to, uh, able to escape. Now, the documentary I was watching claimed that the reason these creatures are ultimately blue uh, is because the creatures wanted to become blue. Um, I kind of thought about that for a second, and they explained it and made some sense. Their colors can be attractive for mating. I'm following. Their colors help them blend in with the sky. I'm following. Their colors warn predators not to eat them. I'm following. I was tracking with all that in the documentary until it asserted that through random chance, survival instincts, and millions of near years of random mutation, some worm got lucky again and again and again and again and again and again and again, ended up learning how to become a cocoon or a chrysalis, sprouted legs, developed eyes, grew wings, and then covered itself in complex iridescent blue scales that humans can't even create with human machinery yet. You know, the problem with this kind of theory, it's a gap theory, is that it isn't validated by simple math 
and probability. But it's the best guess you're left with when you fail to recognize the wisdom and power of God in even the smallest of organisms. I hope that when you see this image of a blue butterfly, God's creation speaks to you. God is the maker of stars who possessed the wisdom and power to generate light and heat from the sun in such a way that a flying butterfly could reflect the beauty of the heavens. God is the maker of the wind who possessed the wisdom and power to craft lighter-than-air creatures that almost magically defy his own laws of gravity and air pressure. God is the maker of life who possesses the wisdom and power to fill the tiniest of creatures with a heart and with as much detail and complexity as he did with the largest of creatures. Here's something incredible about creation. Whereas blue butterflies reflect the blue light of the heavens, God made human beings to reflect himself in us. Genesis 1.31 then says, And God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. Ultimately, God's wisdom and power in creation reveals his overwhelming knowledge. No one knows more than God. Creation proves it, and the wise will recognize it, but the fool will say, not in his mind, will say in his heart, there is no God. Even the most brilliant of human beings will never come close to being able to create, let alone sustain, an entire cosmos in which animals of every kind cannot just survive but thrive. Even if we had the ability to obtain all of God's blueprints for creation, scientists already know that none of us could acquire the power needed to bring it into fruition. In God alone do we discover both wisdom, power, and knowledge necessary for any of us to exist. There are none like him. Redemptive history starts with creation, but soon after, it continues into judgment. This is the second part of redemptive history that we'll look at. It's difficult from creation alone to ascertain much about God's morality or his moral attributes. However, when we come to judgment in redemptive history, we learn quite clearly that God fully applies his perfect wisdom and power in matters of good and evil, just as he fully applies them in matters of creation. Uh, there are many places in Scripture, of course, that we could go to unpack God's judgment, but I think one of the clearest examples of God's wisdom and power being applied in judgment can be found in Exodus during the ten plagues. If you have your Bible, let's look there at Exodus 12, 12. Um, chapter 12 is about the final plague, which is called the Passover. Uh, in this, God sends the angel of death upon Egypt and it results in the death of all the firstborn in the land who did not cover their homes in the blood of the lamb. 
Now, you might think that cruel at first, but you must remember back to Exodus 1. The Egyptians had begun drowning every boy that was born to the Hebrew people indiscriminately. They threw them into the Nile, literally ethnic genocide. Even God's most severe judgments are merciful in light of how heinous people's sins can be. But we learn of something very interesting in Exodus 12, 12 though. In the second half of the verse, God says this, On all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Not just the people, not just the rulers, not just the land, but on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Now, God makes it pretty clear through Moses that he is the supreme judge over creation, over people, over rulers. But when the ten plagues come, God also uses them to execute, execute judgment upon all the man-made gods of the Egyptians. In other words, God uses Moses to set up a competition, a grand competition between himself and the so-called gods of the most powerful empire in the ancient world. You know, many of us are probably looking forward to the Summer Olympics to see the Tokyo 2021 games, um, but you might say that the ten plagues were like an ancient Egyptian Olympics of sorts. Priests represented the best wisdom the ancient world had, the, had to offer. Pharaoh represented the best of ancient power in the world, and the Egyptian gods represented the blessings of having them both. And Yahweh, the great I Am, single-handedly challenges the greatest empire in the world to a competition, and he emerges the victor. One pastor writes this, The common wisdom of the day was that each of the Egyptian gods brought particular blessings to Egypt. Much more was at stake in the plagues than a simple conflict between Moses and Pharaoh. God was essentially saying to Pharaoh, you worship Osiris, saying the Nile sustains you, but I will turn the Nile into a lifeless swamp. You worship Heket, the goddess of birth who is depicted as a frog, but I will give birth to so many frogs that you will wish you had never known her. You worship Ra, saying that the sun will shine on you, but I will turn the sun to darkness. What you have put in my place will become like a plague to you. The great question at the beginning of the book of Exodus is whether God could rescue his suffering people. And if he could, would he care enough to act? We still ask this same question today when we see suffering around the world and God has answered these questions. God declares in Exodus 3, 7 through 8 this, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them. Judgment is God's ultimate response to the evil of sin. His wisdom in the ten plagues shows us that none are able to rival or thwart 
his divine will to redeem and deliver people. His power in the ten plagues shows us that no form of evil is able to stop or even escape his punishment. Now, the whole ancient world would eventually learn there is none wiser and that there is none more powerful than the God who redeemed the Hebrew people. In fact, when Joshua leads them to Jericho, Rahab is the one who confesses that the people of Jericho have lost their will to fight. All they want to do is hide behind their walls because they had heard about the God who defeated the Egyptians and the God who had defeated the Amorites. None can withstand the judgment of God. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Ultimately, God's wisdom and power and judgment reveal his overwhelming righteousness. So many people in our world long for justice, and they often try to get justice on their own. When we see human beings doing horrible things to other people, as it should, it causes us to lose faith in humanity. Putting your faith in even the best of priests, the best of kings, the best of celebrities is always going to let you down. That is unless you put your faith in the one true God whose own righteousness has no equal. God tells us none among us is righteous, not even one. And his judgments in the Bible show us he is supremely righteous. And no amount of human wisdom, no amount of human power can come close to measuring against his. Now at the end of our service, we'll contemplate God's ultimate judgment in the New City Catechism. But as we'll see, the good news is that while unrighteous people cannot thwart God's good and righteous judgment, God himself has the wisdom and the power to satisfy his own judgment against us. Uh, this brings us to the third part of redemptive history that we'll look at, and that is salvation. If you've ever seen or read uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, uh, the story reaches a point where the proper judgment in the land of Narnia has been broken and it must be satisfied. Uh, the witch is ecstatic to find out that Aslan the lion has chosen to give up his own life to save the boy Edmund. You see, Edmund had unknowingly and foolishly broken the law of Narnia, and his life belonged to the witch. From her perspective, the witch was more than willing to take the life of Aslan the lion in exchange for the life of a foolish little boy. When Aslan died, she believed she had won, and her wintry reign in Narnia would never end. The greatest power that had opposed her had been defeated by death itself, but as the story goes, not even death could stop Aslan. As many of you know, C.S. Lewis's story is an allegory for Jesus and a parable of the gospel. None are wiser and none are more powerful than God. There is no greater defeat than death. Yet God himself can turn the ultimate defeat, death itself, into the ultimate victory. 
And it is in Christ that we see this most fully revealed. So if you have your Bibles, let's look at 1 Corinthians 1, 22 through 25. Even more so than in creation, and even more so than in judgment, we see the fullness of both God's wisdom and power culminating in Jesus Christ. It says this, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God stronger than men. We preach Christ crucified, the power of God and the wisdom of God. In Christ alone rests the full wisdom and the full power of God. As such, only Jesus can redeem the unrighteous from judgment. He is God incarnate. So he possesses the full wisdom of God to apply knowledge perfectly for the greatest possible good in salvation. And he possesses the omnipotence of God to bring his own divine will to redeem sinners, to deliver them, to bring it into fruition. God redeeming the Hebrew people from judgment in Egypt, that was simply a foretaste. It was an appetizer of what Jesus would come to do at the cross. You know, it may be possible to resuscitate or revive someone, but it is impossible to bring that which is truly dead, truly back to life. Yet in God's wisdom and power, God does the impossible through Jesus Christ. Something said to be impossible is to survive trapped in the bubble of air under the sea. And no, I'm not talking about Jonah. I'm talking about the miraculous survival story of Harrison Okane, a Nigerian sailor, in 2013. Trapped at the bottom of the ocean, this sailor survived in a four-square-foot air bubble for three days, longer than someone using an oxygen tank could. When his tugboat overturned in rough water, he and an air bubble became trapped in one of the chambers of the ship. He had no food, no drinkable water, and was submerged in chilling temperatures for over 72 hours before South African divers stumbled upon the wreckage of the ship. They were shocked to find him alive. He had to spend two days in a decompression chamber when he returned to the surface. At the time, divers said and told newspapers that a typical recreational diver would have only been able to survive in his condition for 20 minutes. Harrison Okane's survival defies what should be possible for human beings. And if people can overcome the impossible in ways that defy what we know, how much more can God overcome the impossible, and raise the dead to new life. Ultimately, God's wisdom and power and salvation should reveal his overwhelming grace. God didn't have to send Jesus to redeem us. 
God didn't have to rescue the Hebrew people from Egypt. Yet in his perfect wisdom and infinite power, God chose to send Jesus to crucifixion on a cross and burial in a tomb for three days. God chose to do this because he isn't just all-knowing. He isn't just righteous. God is overwhelmingly gracious, and he cares. He longs to redeem as many as will remove the idols from their lives and come to him and set their hope on Jesus. In Christ is the fullness of God's wisdom and power displayed. And through Christ... God was able to make a way to give new life to sinners like you and me. Praise God for his overwhelming grace. Well, you've probably realized we have only scratched the surface of redemptive history. There is so much more that could be said about God's wisdom and power in creation, judgment, and salvation. Creation shows us his overwhelming knowledge, judgment, his righteousness, and salvation, his grace. I hope you see that there is infinitely more for us to discover about our creator God. But as our message draws to a close, I want to leave us with three ways that the Bible calls us to respond to God's wisdom and power. Our first response is grounded in 2 Peter 1.16. There Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The application here is this, watch out for fakes. Don't end up like a researcher lost in a self-made cognitive box. Don't end up like a pharaoh in Egypt whose riches and powers can do nothing to save him. Don't end up like a modern man or a modern woman, constantly chasing the next self-improvement fad. All of us are tempted to put fake knockoffs in the place of God in our lives. But nothing comes close to comparing with the true wisdom and true power of God. So don't settle for anything less. Watch out for fakes by pursuing the real thing. Our second response is grounded in 1 Corinthians 1.24, which we just looked at. If we want to experience the wisdom and power of God in our lives, it's not something that you can really try a little bit before you buy. 1 Corinthians tells us Jesus Christ is the wisdom and power of God. So if we want to experience God's wisdom and power, we must fully embrace Christ. Embracing Jesus means that we have to come to him in faith with open arms and open hands. You cannot embrace Jesus if you are still clinging on to something else in this world. You know, if there's something this morning that might be weighing heavily on your heart or your mind, I really just want to encourage you right now mentally and spiritually to lay that burden at the cross of Jesus Christ. Then, as Jesus taught us to pray, tell God, your kingdom come, your will be done. In prayer, invite the power and the wisdom of God to change you into the man or woman that God longs to see you be. 
Our third and final response is based out of James 3, 13 through 18. If you long for the fruits of the Holy Spirit to be more evident in your life, James 3, 13 says they're produced by action. James says, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So what does that mean? Well, if we've embraced the wisdom and power of Christ, then our next step is to demonstrate the wisdom and power of Christ to others. And the way we do this best is simply by telling others about God. When you tell others about what God has done in your life, you demonstrate to the world his power to change people. And when you tell others about what you're learning from God and his word, you demonstrate to the world that rejects him his true and better wisdom. The wisest person doesn't have to be the smartest person who knows it all. No disciple of Jesus ever starts off as an expert. To be meek means to be teachable and humble. So as long as we are meek, God's word tells us that he will demonstrate the wisdom and power of Jesus Christ through us to others. Watch out for fakes. Embrace Christ. Demonstrate Christ. Let's pray. Almighty God, we confess that there is no weakness, no limitation, no weariness in you. And even if there were, your weakness would far surpass our own power at its best. God, we cannot compare. Wise God, we confess there is no foolishness, no ignorance, no error in your ways. And Lord, even if there were, your foolishness would far surpass our own wisdom at its best. God, we cannot compare. Lord, please forgive us for the idols that we've set over ourselves in place of you. Knock them down and renew our hearts. By your wisdom and power, devote us wholly and only to Jesus Christ, our Savior. God, help us to embrace him fully. Help us to demonstrate him fully as we testify to the power of the gospel to make us new. God, you are the infinitely wise, all-powerful creator, judge, and savior. To you, the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. This podcast was produced by Journey Bible Church in Olathe, Kansas. If you're interested in learning more about our church, visit journeybible.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and we'd appreciate a positive rating and would encourage you to share this program with a friend. Thank you for listening.